Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas brought to you by the IPA. Today, we're following up again on the US election and what's clear is that whether or not Donald Trump is still in the White House after January 20th next year, his presence will still loom very large on the US political scene and uh, his legacy will live on for many years, and it's had repercussions all over the world, including in Australia. The great populist realignment is not going anywhere, as we've seen in the turnout for the vote in the US. And uh, we'll also be talking about how that flows in, or has echoes in Australian politics, with the recent uh, cabinet, cabinet tiff uh, between Joel Fitzgibbon and Anthony Albanese over the coal and issues affecting blue-collar voters in Australia. To discuss these issues with me is, of course, my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. Good morning, Scott. Great to have you and great to have back in the studio, back in Melbourne, the IPA's Director of Communication, Evan Mulholland. Thanks for having me, guys. It's, it's great to have you. Yes, uh, lots to talk about with the, uh, the US election, as I say. We will recap the results. Uh, we'll talk about our episode last week where even then we thought that it looked like Biden would just have the edge. A uh, little bit of upset over that, but uh, it's still looking to be the case. We'll talk about uh, Donald Trump's uh, legal challenges. We'll talk about the runoff elections in Georgia. Uh, the state of uh, Congress and what it means for what looks to be a Biden administration. But Chris, what's what's your take on the week as it's evolved? Well, I mean, so we're recording this on Thursday morning, so Thursday the 12th. At the moment, um, obviously, the uh, most of the networks have called, or in fact, all the networks, with the exception of, I think, Real Clear Politics and one or two other um uh, uh, decision desks have called the election for Joe Biden, but as many people have pointed out, particularly on the conservative side, um, it, it the election is not 100% in the bag for Joe Biden. There are outstanding lawsuits in basically all of the major swing states. Um, now, my read of those lawsuits is that despite what the president has been saying publicly, very few of those lawsuits, if any, have um, uh, the capacity to overturn the results, which are quite substantial. There are different numbers floating around, but it might be that there's a quarter of a million votes across the five or so swing states that would have to be reversed in order to um, uh, turn the election for Donald Trump. Nonetheless, um, as many listeners have pointed out to us last week, the election is not 100% in the bag and there is a environment, there is a world where you can imagine that Donald Trump turns it around, or at least these lawsuits turn it around for Donald Trump. Evan, am I being fair in that assessment? What, where do you see the state of play from here? I think that's fair. It's very hard to see uh, how Trump comes back from the position that he's in. Uh, in many of the cases uh, in the swing states, the um, disputed amount of ballots uh, don't exceed the amount that Biden is leading by. Uh, so even if the lawsuits were successful, uh, Biden is just too many votes ahead in a lot of those states for it to matter. Uh, a lot of the cases they pointed out, like in Michigan this morning, uh, our time, um, a lot of the irregularities they pointed out were things like the uh, uh, people counting the votes weren't being friendly to the Republican scrutineers. So you, you can you can see how uh, it's overhyped. One thing I do think might be playing into it because there is a lot of fundraising going on 
for these legal challenges uh, is whether or not the Republican Party are using this to delegitimise the incoming Biden administration or um, somewhat transparently to try to pay off some campaign debts, uh, which the Republican Party do often do. I'm on a lot of their email lists and after you know, congressional elections and midterms, they'll often send emails saying this person has a big campaign debt, can you please chip in? Um, so this might be a, 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 a roundabout way of doing that. Um, uh, now, the last time we were on, uh, I was on looking forward. I did claim that Biden would win, but just. Um, so I'd like to just point that out uh, for the viewers. Okay, we weren't, we weren't going to allow you to assess your, your view, but there you go. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, 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 but um, uh, that's what has been delivered. Um, but I don't think that's kind of the end for 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 Trumpism. Um, I think that Trump has got the second yeah. mo- biggest turnout in vote in American history can, and the most the biggest turnout but, for a losing. Can, can, can I, is, could, it a close, sorry. is it a close election though? <laughs> yeah, well, I was, I was going to say, just before we come back to the meaning of it and, and you know, looking forward, is all about, you know, what is the meaning of this? Um, I can understand why people are uh, very focused on these legal challenges and... Um, I, I dare say, you know, we're going through the stages of grief here. Like Gideon was was clearly grieving on the on the show last week, and you know we all are to some extent. And the next, and there's also denial coming into it. I mean, it was insanely close. Um, as you you know, Evan, you you picked that it was close, and it was. Uh, I think I said on the podcast, and I'm no great sage, but I said I was worried about Arizona, and I spoke about that with Gideon, and indeed Arizona has gone Democrat. Um, but only just, um, and often, and and apparently off off the back of a campaign by the widow of of John McCain, you know, that could have swung the election in Georgia. Uh, it's so close. A state I don't think anyone had penciled in for Biden. Uh, it's so close that um, they've now ordered that all votes be recounted by hand, and which will be interesting in itself because if if ever this fraud issue was going to come out. You know, a, a recount, a complete recount, should actually capture mm. uh, whether there was any systematic bias in it. But I mean, I can understand the the grieving and denial because it was so damn close. But the thing about the uh, American system is, it's we talk about legitimacy, we talk about the will of the people. At the end of the day, what all these systems have to do is deliver a result, and the only reason why. Uh, the American system is perhaps a little bit unusual is you don't have an official result until the Electoral College actually meets and actually does its business. And and uh, until then, we're reliant on these these precedents about you know conceding and you know did have 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 all of the major news media outlets called it. So we're in this bizarre no man's land. But it still looks like the um, if the Electoral College does does its job and the the delegates vote the way they should, then Biden will be president. Yeah, look, look, Scott. I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to upset anybody's grief, but I don't think it looks that close. Um, so if as I suspect, um, they're going to get up to the Biden um, uh, turnout, or sorry, not the turnout, the Biden results are going to get up to 307 or so. Um, also, there's a 5 million vote popular margin lead. That doesn't look close. That looks more substantial than um, the Trump win four years previously. Now, I don't recall us making that claim. I mean, we did have looking forward then, but I don't recall 
conservatives making the claim that it was in fact a nail biter in 2016. Rather, I think it was claimed to be a wild landslide. I worry that we expected because of the polls such an enormous landslide and it wasn't that enormous landslide. So instead we're talking about it like it was a marginal thing. I don't think on the numbers it looks that marginal, although, you know, it, it has implications. For yeah, well, the Conservatives weren't in denial, but, of course, the uh, the Democrats spent four years saying it was because of Russian social media campaigns that swung the election. Well, yeah, but we don't, we don't want to be in a position where Conservatives are also, and people on the right, are spending the next four years saying that it was, it was you know, here's an anecdote of fraud in Pennsylvania, therefore it was stolen from us. And I think that that is a worry that we're heading down that direction. Um, which is not to say that we shouldn't allow the courts to litigate genuine issues. And in some of those cases, there are some genuine issues, but it doesn't seem to me to be the sorts of issues that would swing an election. Chris, it's ironic that the, um, I think that the Republicans uh, have had the biggest turnout in, his, in the history of the Republican Party uh, uh, and the second biggest turnout of any party, um, yet uh, are going to have to uh, put their heads down and map out the electoral uh, 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 chances of, the, the, of where they went wrong. Uh, they, they're going to have to take a good hard look at themselves uh, at where they went wrong at uh, achieving the, the best turnout for the Republican Party in history. Uh, but I do think those... Uh, there aren't any prizes for second place though, right? <laughs> no, no, but I do think you know some, some lessons do need to be learned, particularly around the the Midwest and, and, and places like Arizona, maybe if he were, if Trump was a bit more gracious to, to John McCain during his time, that there might not have been a campaign against him. Um, but I do think it goes to the complex of the, the, the polling industry uh, and how they were incredibly wrong. Like 17 points ahead, Biden was meant to be in Wisconsin. That is just outrageous. And bordering on a... Um, uh, was this a tool in like in in voter suppression like people might have looked at that 17 point lead and thought i'm not going to come out because it, my vote doesn't make a difference whereas it actually does um so you get a much more uh, a better uh, uh indication of the results when uh groups like trafalgar and other groups ask like who do you think your neighbors are voting for and then wait it and we were told Every single polling organisation had weighted in the conservative vote, had weighted mm. in um, the uh, the 2016 result, but clearly it hasn't. And I think it goes to, as well, the last election in, in Australia. Everyone thought that Bill Shorten was a surefire prime minister. But we have the same thing here. People don't want to say they vote liberal or vote conservative Uh because of these cultural factors. Yeah, that, that's right. So, so Evan, you're 100% right, but the observation I, I want to make is the same observation I made after the last Australian federal election, which is just because the polls are wrong, you can't interpret a scraping in as a landslide victory. So there was a lot of crowing amongst conservatives after Scott Morrison scraped back in as if it was a harbinger of enormous change on the centre right, when in fact it was closer than most of the elections that we've ever described as close. It just shocked us because the polls were wrong. We have to stop. So I'm, I'm as guilty as this from as anybody yeah. else, absolutely. But we have to stop 
viewing the polls as the status quo and any reversion from the polls as as a huge success. I think what what I took from the 2019 election and kind of in the US as well in different areas wasn't the closeness, it wasn't the win, it was where the swings were. It was mm. the 10% swings to the coalition in uh, Central and North Queensland. It was the 20% uh, gain in vote in One Nation in the Hunter, uh, where Joel Fitzgibbon's seat is. It was massive swings in regional areas where you've got um, uh, low socioeconomic people, you've got workers in, in, in manufacturing and, and coal communities and gas and, 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 and resources um, that swung massively. It was outer suburban uh, electorates that swung massively. Um, that's the kind of changing heartland that I was uh, very interested in and kind of happened in the US as well. You've seen in Florida, you've seen um, in Texas towards the border as well, uh, swings uh, from working class people, from Hispanic people, from uh, uh, high, their biggest vote of, of black Americans as well. Whereas the Republicans now, you know, putting aside whether Trump's won or not, he probably hasn't, um, are now claiming that they're the party of the workers, which is a massive shift and continues their narrative around the Democrats being the elite, the urban class. So, so, Evan, do you want to talk a little bit about Joel Fitzgibbon, which I'm sure you're very keen to discuss, um, because I think that is important. And we um, we should talk about more detail about the US election shortly. But but do you want to just explain what's happened this week? Because it is is important. I think it speaks to that. Yeah, very significant. So um, uh, Joel Fitzgibbon ran for the leadership against Albanese for a couple of days after the 2019 election. He had a massive swing against him. Uh, I think it was about 14% and almost lost his seat to One Nation uh, by about a thousand. He won by about a thousand votes. And he talked about um, how uh, blue collar workers, you know, uh, what he called high vis uh, workers, uh, came in and would grab a LNP or One Nation had a vote card. And, and for him, their Labor's traditional votes, their laborers, and he says he wants to put the la Labor back in the Labor Party. Um, and uh, has been running a line on, on climate change, uh, that there needs to be room for coal and gas and, and manufacturing, uh, to the great angst and disappointment of a lot of his colleagues. So he'd foreshadowed this, but apparently in Monday night there was a big shadow cabinet meeting where there was a big dust-up between Anthony Albanese and Joel Fitzgibbon, and apparently Mark Dreyfus got involved <laughs> as well. Uh, and uh, he said, Mark Dreyfus called him a disgrace, and he said, um, shut up, mate. Uh, if, if you're criticising me, I know I'm on the right path, uh, highlighting uh, his belief in Mark Dreyfus's decision-making. Uh, but I think it goes to a more important thing in what we've just talked about in, in this, in this uh, idea of the, that the electorate is changing. Uh, a lot of traditional working-class people are now... Uh, in the coalition column or the One Nation column and not the Labor column because Labor has been seen to be now the party of inner city elites, urban class, university educated class, rather than uh, being what it was, which was the traditional working class people. Now, um, everyone said, oh, he was due to resign at the end of the year or whatnot, but only two weeks ago, he bought 
the AWU and the CFMEU in for a presentation in the Labor Party about the role for coal and gas yeah, and how there's still a role for coal and gas. You don't do that if you're about to resign. Yeah, yeah, the, the, and it's and it's not over yet, it, and it's part of a thing. The only thing I'd I'd say there, Evan, is I'd say that constituency at the moment mm. you, you might put in that in that column because I think this what's what's common with America. I think there's similarities and difference in how it plays out, but similar dynamics. But I I think of it as um, politicisation. You know, this classic. You know, it was always the left in the 60s and 70s who talked about awareness raising and consciousness raising and, and, and getting political. You know, Obama was a community organiser. I think what we've... What communities need organising. That's, that's So between Obama that. and Trump, what you had were, were two great community organisers. These were people who had the capacity to mobilise masses of people and inspire them to say, you have some power. And, and that's what... Um, and you know the core of it was uh, the white working class. It's true, uh, and and interestingly, between 2016 and 2020, Trump was actually able to broaden that out into a, um, uh, a increasingly um, certainly Latino uh, working class, and, he, and his vote amongst uh, the white working class actually dropped a little bit. Um, but it was originally the white working class, and it was about switching them on and, and saying, get out and vote. Uh, your vote matters, your constituency matters. And I think we're seeing that too with the constituency you're describing. And they are, um, they're not lost to the Labor Party because, you know, this is not like tribal loyalties, but it's like, and, unless and until the Labor Party um, stops taking the same climate change policy to every election that they have for the last five elections, which is Joel Fitzgibbon's mm. point, then, no, we're not going to vote for you. So, so yeah, the realignment is there, but it's it's still perhaps provisional. It could become entrenched, but if, you know, if the Labor Party does another five elections taking Mark Dreyfus's climate policy, then this is what we might actually see. Well, it's actually Mark Butler who uh, has been the climate change mm. spokesman for Labor since the to on 2013, basically. Um, and so he's had a couple of goes at it, uh, failed pretty miserably. And and uh, Joel Fitzgibbon's point is that uh, Mark Butler should uh, go from that pol- um, uh, portfolio to another area because it hasn't, clearly hasn't worked. Um, and, I, I, yeah, I think it does highlight a lot of issues within Labor, but this is a very big... This should be on the radar for the coalition because if Labor can win back that... Um, working class vote uh, in sort of what they're perceived to be a new heartland, then that should be a big worry because if Labor if if Labor shows some uh, a path for these voters to vote for them, they're talking like about five seats in 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 Queensland and three seats in New South Wales, and that's enough to swing an election. Yeah. So. So, so where, where do we go from here? So, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what worries me about this. Um, we have seen uh, a number of governments, and I'm thinking particularly um, the Johnson government in the UK, um, look at the possibility of being a working class party, or, or at least appealing more to working class voters. Um, in their case, following the coattails of Brexit, and responding by not just speaking to that constituency, but also going left. So um, increasingly pro um, uh, labor market regulation, increasingly pro pro regulation, um, uh, increasingly pro social spending and all that sort of thing. Uh, 
So it, 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 there's a world in which conservative parties become more left-wing as they try to chase traditionally more left-wing voting Labor voters, working-class voters, I should say. Is that desirable? Is there a way that we can speak the um, language of a working-class majority whilst simultaneously sharing the, the free market policies that will make us all rich? Yeah, so you see that playing out. Um, no, it's a very good question. You see that playing out, um, say, Trump on Social Security. Um, so Social Security reform was a traditional uh, Republican agenda item. Uh, they pushed through significant reforms even while Clinton was president. They did that through congressional leadership. Trump was completely uninterested in Social Security reform, uh, you know, be it food stamps or anything else. This was... Um, uh, these, were, these things were valued by the constituency um, from whom he was seeking votes. And so it went off the agenda. Um, uh, tax cuts uh, were, were still a thing uh, because Americans but, generally prefer lower taxes. I'm not, I'm but even, even really basic things like, so um, Trump in the election campaign at the very end, maybe because he saw the writing on the wall, started saying that he was open to the $15 federal minimum wage. Um, now, that would be absolutely disastrous for those very working class voters that he's hunting for, but it is a traditionally democratic policy. It is a labour leading policy. Um, and I think that we can crow about conservatives appealing more to the working class, but if we're simultaneously making conservative policy more left-wing, I don't know where the victory is. Yeah, yeah, so, or, or Boris Johnson with, you know, uh, reclaiming the National Health Service from from, yeah. from Labor as uh, iconic. And of, and, of course, that just means that, you know, it will, it will never be reformed, it will never be touched. Um, and uh, uh, with all the problems that that single-payer system has. So, yeah, and the same things in, in Australia. It's just playing out in, you know, a complete lack of interest in labour market reform, I'd say, almost almost certainly, for example. <laughs> well, that's been since 2007. But yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah, well, quite apart from work choices being, you know, being the third rail for the, 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 the centre-right to, to immolate upon, um, you know, they wouldn't even know politician from the centre-right is going to be entrepreneurial and trying to make the case at the moment when uh, the strategy is seen to be to reach out to uh, the blue-collar workers because that, that then would peel them away. Well, yeah, just on workplace, I mean, they've got these working groups that they started at the when, when COVID hit about, you know, what Australia looks like on the other side of this and industrial relations reform. And the idea was to get unions and business leaders and, 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 and policy experts in, in the same room uh, to thrash out policy reform, and, um, which was meant to be uh, uh, come back and report in October on what they'd agreed on. But uh, yesterday they announced that that's not going to be till next year. So obviously they can't agree on anything. Um, and what the coalition is doing... In, Look, in accords sense, take time. Accords take time. Yeah, but what the coalition is doing, in a sense, is outsourcing... Uh, policy advocacy to try to get something, get your opponents to agree on something instead of actually making the case for reform. Um, the unions don't stop making the case for what they want what the, and, and the reforms they want, uh, whether it be stopping casualisation of the workforce and whatnot. You hear it over and over again, yet we're just completely, uh, the coalition are just com you know, completely hands-off yeah. uh, in this kind of space. Even with things that um, aren't necessarily about free market reforms, but are simply sensible things, like one of those working parties was on 
um, uh, creating a, a single award which could cover the hospitality industry because one of the reasons why um, uh, we've talked about the uh, the underpayment crisis in, in the hospitality mm. industry, but then we note also that even organisations like the ABC don't know what they're supposed to pay staff. Universities. Universities have underpaid staff. So the lesson is not that um, hospitality is some industry that is uniquely full of uh, people who want to underpay staff. Uh, there, there may be the odd bad egg, but a more likely explanation is that our award system is now so insanely complex um, and you get five different answers from five different government departments and their so-called helplines on anything, that um, there would be a huge benefit in just having a, a single award um, uh, for the system. And that was one of the working groups. So we're not talking about bringing back, you know, some kind of, you know, individual contracts or anything, but they can't even do that. They can't even articulate get, a cost case get, for that. To get back to the theme, to get back to the theme, is there a world in which a working class-centric party actually tackles those problems? Or do we need a um, aggressively free market party to do so? Is there a coalition that allows us to both appeal to that community and do the sort of things that we we know are needed? Well, can I, can I ask that another way? So this is the difference with the American system, and this is what, this is what I wanted to bring out today. So in the American political system, the way it operates, um, there can be more differentiation, if you like. And what, what Trump has really done is uh, break up the bases of, of both parties. He's peeled off uh, that blue-collar base from the, from the Democrats or, or a significant chunk of it and moved it over towards the Republicans. And then they both have moved away from the centre, if you like, um, there's a radical wing of the Democrats and this populist wing of the Republicans. In Australia, with our two-party preferred system um, and the allocation of preferences, there's a huge um, incentive, I guess, to occupy the middle ground electorally. Um, it's, it's the mm. classic two-party two -party model, I think. Um, I think the electoral system matters. I, so now we see this divide is really within both parties. So it's this tension between the inner city elites and, and a blue-collar working class um, in both parties uh, to an extent. Um, I mean, our, our, the federal treasurer is in the seat of Kuyong, which mm. is almost like the I, I, iconic, certainly Victorian... Um, Most working class... Seat of the country. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. A lot of high vis vests in uh, <laughs> in Turek. Um, uh, so I don't know that it's actually possible to have some kind of lasting realignment in 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 on the centre right. And, in Australia. Yeah, yeah. I, I should have said that it's, this is not just a, a labour problem, but it's a coalition problem too. And we've seen mm -hmm. New South Wales, the New South Wales government introduced some pretty radical reform on on energy. That um, I don't think even Labor would contemplate uh, to try to appeal to Greens voters in inner city seats yep. uh, in uh, the North Shore kind of areas. Um, so the coalition is dealing with this. The coalition lost the seat of Hawthorne, for example, at the last state election in Victoria, uh, which is an inner city seat. Uh, that they've, um, you know, they're looking closely at the inner city seats. My my thing is with this realignment and the theme we're going along is that the coalition need to look towards uh, the outer suburbs and the regions for its survival. And it's it's very easy to think of the Liberal Party 
and the coalition is the party of government federally and, you know, they can be in for a while, Labor's hopeless, blah, blah, blah. But this is a really big issue because um, the inner city is clearly being swallowed up and they need somewhere to go. Uh, I don't think there's an electoral success in going left, uh, but I do think there's an electoral pathway in reaching out to uh, working class people in the outer suburbs and uh, the regions. Uh, the safest seat in Victoria is not Kuyong, it's not the Jewel in the Crown. The safest seat is Aston, hmm. which is an outer suburban working class electorate. So I just have a question for Chris then, uh, author hmm. of, amongst many other terms, uh, The Libertarian Alternative. So, so to come back to your question, Chris, in, in that realignment then, what is the scope for a small government, low-taxing, pro-free market um, party? So in, say, in a diff- again, electoral systems matter in, in New Zealand with its mixed-member proportional representation system. Uh, they, uh, the uh, ACT party, the ACT party, uh, and you'll tell me what the acronym stands for in a moment, uh, had their best election result uh, ever, I believe, you know, um, and we've seen the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party in in Australia, you know, have its moments. It had uh, Senator uh, David Lionhelm. It has um, uh, members in uh, different state parliaments, uh, including a couple of uh, 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 brilliant guys in Victoria. Um, how how does how does that that constituency get expressed in Australia? Well, to answer your question, Scott, first, Wikipedia tells me that ACT stands for Association of Consumers and Taxpayers, which it was originally derived from, Very good. Um, which is a lovely, lovely way to start. But you, you, you're absolutely right. And that's this is what stops me getting excited about a grand realignment, because fundamentally, I don't care whether conservative parties are in power. I care whether free market policies are implemented. Um, now, if there is this sort of uh, and I know this is not your view entirely, Evan, but if there is this realignment that says the conservative parties are going to be much more working class orientated, then there is an opportunity for parties of the left to pick up certainly mainstream sort of centrist parties like Labor, like the Democrats, to pick up some of that um, uh, more open market agenda. Um, and in that sense, you know, to the, to the extent that they did so. My, my, you know, I don't have allegiances on either side of politics, but, but, you know, they would be much more appealing to me if they did so. The worst case scenario is that neither party um, picks up this low tax deregulation, pro migration um, uh, agenda, and that would be catastrophic for our economic growth. That would be catastrophic for our prosperity. That's that's what I worry about. Now, this might be a bit overblown, right? So, um, you know, in fact, the Trump administration, despite all the claims about moving towards the working class, again, they gave us or they gave the US really big corporate tax cuts. They had a really substantial deregulation agenda and they pursued traditional Republican Party um, policies like the judges and so forth. So, so, you know, we might be over over problematizing this, but to the extent that it happens, I really worry about it. Um, I had a piece earlier in the week in The Age where I asked this question that I might ask you, Evan, um, if you don't mind. I'll, I'll quote my piece. Um, uh, just, just as I say, we should not overstate the ideological change. Trump administration enacted many Republican policies. But the real question that we're going to debate in the centre-right is could any Republican president have gotten these policies through 
or did it have to be someone like Donald Trump? Now, that's just not that's not just a fun question to ask. It's really a question about can you simultaneously appeal to the working class and enact traditional pro-market policies? I, what, what's your what's your view, Evan? I mean, did it have to be Donald Trump, or can we, or is this just a formula we can pick up and 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 implement anywhere in any future election in Australia, the US, UK? This is yeah, two things. It, it, I don't, I don't. It would have been very hard. I'm not saying it was impossible, but it would have been for very hard for someone other than Donald Trump to withstand the media pressure over a Brett Kavanaugh to um, uh, get out of the uh, Paris Climate Agreement under enormous pressure uh, from the media to withstand all the attacks over Russian collusion, etc. Um, to get his deregulation agenda through and, and you know massive tax cuts through, um, in in Australia it's harder because of one thing and that's compulsory voting, um, which forces major political parties to appeal to swing voters. Now usually swing voters aren't your uh, uh, radical voters, aren't your either you know, very left or very right or very free market voters, they are um, uh, looking for things and policies that affect them. Now, uh, I guess it's the art of persuasion. Uh, we need leaders here in Australia that can articulate free market policies, that can uh, push for uh, deregulation, uh, that can push for uh, uh, tax cuts uh, and, and company tax cuts as well and build a narrative around them about how they affect the working class and, and specifically. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, we're, we're always, you know, unfortunately, I think going to have compulsory voting. So that makes it a different beast here in Australia. I, th I, I like that uh, point you made in there, uh, Evan. I like everything you said, Evan. <laughs> Thank you for coming on Looking Forward, which is a production <laughs> of the so IPA. as well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> When you say narrative, I, th I think one of the th one of the takeouts, of course, is and this is where Trump was right. Of course, the the Republican uh, Party, uh, its lines were tired. No one was interested. It was Reaganomics essentially. It was it was mm. a warmed over Reaganomics, and and God knows, you know, all hail Ronald Reagan, the great man who transformed U.S. and global politics really and set the agenda. But it was it was completely tapped out by the time uh, Trump came along. And so only Trump, as you say, Chris, could actually get these things through. But partly is you find um, you can find a populist justification for things. Like I still don't know why the Liberal Party in Australia can't get on the red tape reduction agenda that the IPA has been publishing on now for four or five years. Um, because you know this this is a win win outcome. It's not like you know the it's working yes. Yeah, it's not like the working class loses now. Tax say tax cuts are a different story. I would so I would hate to admit it, but I would have thought it'd be very hard to have an agenda uh, for changing the top marginal tax rate, notwithstanding the entrepreneurial capacities that could unleash. But as Josh Frydenberg has shown, is you can build a constituency to change the scales, to take the burden off the middle class, um, to encourage people to work and save and invest. And similarly, you can't touch, it's clearly very difficult to touch the corporate tax rate, but if you have 100% depreciation, which is one of the things that's come through in COVID, nobody bats an eyelid. 
So something that benefit, <laughs> yeah, something that actually does something yeah. for the business community that actually unleashes investment. Um, um, uh, that's okay because it didn't play to the optics around the top marginal uh, corporate tax rate or the yeah. top top marginal income tax rate. So, so they've got to find uh, a better narrative connected to people's lived experience and maybe be a bit bit smarter about how to do it. Don't give up on the free market agenda, Chris, I think is what I'm trying to say. Just connect it to this new politics and make things happen. Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't, Wouldn't that, that be good? We've actually, <laughs> actually got some, I some mean, changes. I mean, I've complained about the narrowness of Australian public policy discussion for a long time because as you, as you list those things, you know, it, it, quite apart from cutting the top marginal rate, um, indexing the tax rates to inflation would be uh, the most sensible and beneficial policy you could possibly imagine. And it wouldn't take that much boldness from a government, but apparently that's just way too hard. So you do wonder what on earth the federal government is doing with its time, um, <laughs> especially when you say, well, well uh, I'll ask this to Evan. Again, this was a little bit uh, of, of one of the themes of my piece. And so um, what is your assessment of the um, the the effect that the Trump administration has had on the Australian centre-right's view of itself. So I, I was thinking about particularly um, what how Scott Morrison has responded, and in my assessment that he's tried to go a little bit with the zeitgeist, um, but mostly slip in the sort of policies that he was going to do anyway. So he talks about, um, so where Trump talks about globalism, right? Scott Morrison talked about negative globalism, which is sort of a traditional skepticism about yeah. international institutions. Now, who could ever be pro-negative globalism, for my mind? But um, <laughs> what's your assessment of the impact that the Trump administration has had on the centre-right or centre-right politics in Australia? Yeah, I think when Trump was elected in 2016, it sort of sent shockwaves through uh, the centre-right in Australia. I think both uh, state political parties and federal political parties on the right uh, saw this as an opportunity, uh, you know, whether it be One Nation, whether it be uh, the Liberal Party, the LNP, uh, thought they could capture this vote that was occurring around the world. Now, obviously, this didn't do very well for at a state level in Queensland. It didn't do very well at a state level in Victoria. Um, and even... Labor federally tried to run ads of white people and in Queensland and um, uh, appealing to working class voters. Um, uh, but they all of a sudden saw an opportunity for a, a leadership that was different, uh, leadership that was more conservative, that could get things done that were very out there and achievable. Um, and that sort of saw a heightened amount of criticism of Malcolm Turnbull's leadership. Uh, and you saw it from people like uh, uh, Tony Abbott, from others uh, on the right, uh, that um, Malcolm Turnbull was not the right person for the times, which sort of broadened the narrative uh, around change. To be, to be fair, Tony Abbott would have thought that, of course. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I, think, I think that sort of played into it on the right. It sort of expanded... Uh, I think the uh, community on the right and sort of brought it towards uh, uh, more where Trump was um, and, uh, you know, for for the coalition, it had large consequences. It sort of, I think, 
in somewhat sparked a slow momentum for a leadership change federally. Um, and I do think there is an element where, um, you know, Scott Morrison didn't have to go out there being Trump, but he did have to send a nod to regional and rural voters and outer suburban voters that he was on their side. Uh, whereas I think that um, Turnbull would have had a lot of a lot of, of, of trouble with that. Yeah, and, and in, of course, ter- uh, Morrison's able to do that partly through his superior abilities as a retail politician. Mm. Um, so you can have exactly the same policies as, as Malcolm Turnbull, but because it's Morrison. He pretty much did. And, yeah, pretty much does. And, and you know, but he can, you know, be it, follow the rabbitos and, yeah. you know. He, he uh, says the word tradies more. That's exactly. And, you know, he can carry it off. And and it, and it's, um, it may even be genuine. Um, and, uh, but, yeah, no, I think you make. Since we're tossing out wild ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and actually I'll say some nice things about Morrison in a later segment of the show uh, when I come to talk about national security in Jim Molan's podcast. But uh, you also made the – yes, I think you're right, Evan. It emboldened the conservatives um, because conservatives in Australia, I think, felt themselves to be like one of the lost tribes of Israel for a long time. It's like mm. politics has turned against us. Um, it, it, it was uh, almost uh, depressive, introspective, um, almost glorying in um, uh, being a minority. Yep. And and what Trump did was suddenly create the possibility that not only uh, do we, capital C conservatives, um, uh, represent, you know, the true values, the right values, but this is electorally powerful. And, you know, and then it turned into a critique of why Malcolm Turnbull lost seats mm. at the election. Uh, we had the... Um, uh, what was John Stone's um, uh, grouping called? The Delcons. Yep. Uh, and so, so they were emboldened and, and in some ways uh, were justified, have now been justified by, yep. by the, um, uh, what happened, the transition from Turnbull. Turnbull, of course, <laughs> brought it upon himself again mm. over, with climate <laughs> policy, again. Um, uh, and, and really his uh, Four Corners experience is not really about Murdoch systematically turning Australia towards any political thing. Yep. It's really about uh, the two wings of the Liberal Party in Australia and Turnbull being unhappy that Murdoch was seen to side with one of those wings. Yeah, and uh, while Conservatives were rallied by Trump's win in 2016 and took that as a, a mandate in Australia... I don't think that was quite right for them to, to, to completely go that way. And I think it's led to a lot of bad outcomes at a state level for Liberal parties mm. around the country. Um, uh, I also don't think the progressive side of politics in, in Australia can claim any mandate from, from a Biden victory. Now, we've seen the left in Australia over the last week. This is, these are the same people that have run an argument for decades about how Australia shouldn't be America's deputy sheriff. Mm. These are the same people that feigned foreign interference from Russia and how terrible it was uh, interference in the US election. Uh, but now they're saying, and these are the same people that called last year's election the climate election, but now these all these same people are saying an electoral result in the United States should determine Australia's policy outcome in Australia. That is wrong, and the electorate will look at that and go, no way. Absolutely. That's right, and and everybody has the habit of doing this after an election because elections are always very tightly fought things, and slightly contradicting my 
um, earlier position, you know, the election is close insofar as there's only 5 million votes between them in a country of um, nearly a quarter of a billion people, um, more than a quarter of a billion people. Um, so it's, it's not like there's a clear movement across a country. We, it, it's embarrassing when it happens in Australia and we're told that if the left win an election, then it's time to kick the conservatives out of the press, which is what happened when Kevin Rudd um, uh, won in 2007, very famously. It's even more embarrassing when we can say that because there was an election in the United States that just went to the Democrats, thus we should completely change the electoral politics in Australia as a result <laughs> of or change our change change our vibes. <laughs> yeah, because because uh, Lubyshenko won the election in Belarus, um, we should. But uh, I mean, the other and the other thing about it is uh, there's always been that tendency, but now it's even worse because of the globalization of media. Um, and we might spend more time on this in another day. But I want to see some stats um, about. Uh, the coverage of this US election across the world. We've always been interested, of course, and there's always been this syndrome. But now, um, uh, Tyler Cowen pointed out, say, on social media, that so much of the US election traffic was by people who don't live in the US and don't vote. Uh, he's almost like, can you can you please stop interfering in our elections? You know, <laughs> allegedly it was the Russians, but really it was the entire world community that was shaping the debates in America during their election campaign. And it's no surprise then that um, Australians almost feel like anything that happens there should flow back because mm. they're Australians, uh, Brits, the French, whoever, they're all part of the conversation about what's happening in America because I don't, America I, I don't know Scott. I, I don't I don't think that's quite right what I think it is is a general recognition from political and non-political people alike that this was a genuinely consequential election and it was genuinely consequential because of Donald Trump as a historically unique figure and if Donald Trump had won again certainly had won clearly again it would have meant some really substantial things for the globe and for global politics. Now, we can argue about whether those were pro or con, but I think every Australian that was, every Australian who has been poring over the Electoral College and telling us about counties in Pennsylvania yes. for the first time in their entire life, that means something. And I think both on the left and the right, for different reasons, this has been seen as just the most important election in American history. Um, and now we say that every election, right? And every every government says this is the most important election, and and I hate to see it when you when you hear it from Australian governments because it never is. But I think this one was genuinely constant. At, at least since eighteen sixty, mm. I'll pay that. At, <laughs> well, least, yeah. at least since eighteen sixty. But we didn't have Twitter then. Um, it feels like we've had Twitter for too long, but not that far. But not that far. I think we have come to that segment of the show, uh, gentlemen, where we t start talking about our culture picks. Uh, just a reminder, uh, Looking Forward is a product of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join or donate. Chris, what have you been watching? Oh, you've actually got a book, I believe. I read a book. Amazing, yeah. I so, read a book. Sorry, force oh, of habit. I was going to say, what Netflix show are you going to tell us about this week? But... I've, I've managed to um, read a book, or at least read most of the book. Um, so I've been reading a book called Children of Ash and Elm, A History of the Vikings by Neil Price. Um, this is a, um, as it says, a very comprehensive um, history of 
the Vikings, so the peoples that inhabited um, uh, Norway, Sweden, um, and Denmark during the early Middle Ages. The um, uh, it, it is a magnificent book. It is one of these very high quality, comprehensive, um, definitive histories. Came out um, this year. Neil Price is an archaeologist, and some of his own personal research obviously goes into the book. But it's a very comprehensive. Um, uh, uh, history of, of the Vikings and their time and place. It's, a, it's one of these, I'm going to call it a modern history, in that it, if, when I say a modern history, it sort of, it covers all, it, it, it's focused, at least in the parts that I've read so far, and I'm about halfway through the book, it's mostly focused on the social context and the, and the lives of the Vikings. It's not a, not a history of, um, uh, the particular raids. It's not a chronological history in that sense. So it does all that you would expect from a modern history. Um, so it is situated in world history. It has sections on, it, it uses environmental history to inform it. There's um, history of gender and so forth in, in the Viking age. There's the history of private lives, all that sort of thing. Now, um, I enjoy that sort of work, but it makes it a very modern history. Um, and uh, nonetheless, Nonetheless, even if that's not really your bag, it is incredibly well-written and incredibly enjoyable. So I highly, highly recommend it if you're looking for something just as far away from the US election as possible, which is the Viking settlements of Scandinavia. Yep, got to, got to love the Vikings. Got to love, got to love the Vikings. Yeah, and, and their, their pagan mythology. Well, what, what I do like about it, so it's, it's, modern, it's a modern history in another way as well. So if this is a book, if this book was written... 20 years ago, it would be very much focused on, you know what, the Vikings weren't violent at all. In fact, they were, in truth, peace-loving people who just adored freedom and were fully equal and all that sort of stuff. So, it, But it's it's well past that. It's an incredibly brutal society. There's a long um, discussion of uh, slavery and, in fact, the Viking raids were basically the slave-taking economy of um much of the much of the Viking um, era, so it, it goes into some of the really brutal um, uh, aspects of the Vikings. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not trying to make you admire the Vikings, which right. is okay. which is what a um, uh, a history of the seventies or eighties would have done. Right. Um, thank you, Chris. Uh, I might talk a bit. I might go next. If it's all right, Evan. Um, That's because uh, a listener, Ian Rose, um, on one of our uh, social media feeds, suggested a podcast, uh, Jim Molan's podcast, uh, Noise Before Defeat. Um, said, why don't you listen to and review that? So here I am, Ian. Uh, excellent suggestion. Uh, Jim Molan, of course, the um, uh, Liberal Senator for New South Wales, uh, formerly uh, Commander of Operations, uh, in a joint team with the US in Iraq. Uh, I read his book, um, it must have been a decade ago, on on that period, a very uh, thoughtful, serious guy. Um, and, uh, and, of course, his speciality is around defence and national security, and that's what his six-part podcast is about. Uh, the title, Noise Before Defeat, is, is drawn from a quotation from Sun Tzu, and I'll see if I can get this right, uh, he quotes it at the start of every episode, but it's essentially strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory, but tactics without strategy is just noise before defeat. Um, the whole podcast is a positive case for a national security strategy, um, and I must admit I learned something straight away because what he's doing there is distinguishing 
national security from a defence strategy. Um, he talks about the defence strategies that Australia has had, uh, the various white papers that you know used to be updated from year to year. And he says two things about it. Uh, first of all is a defence strategy is not a national security strategy because a national security strategy is about all of the elements that go towards uh, Australia's ability to uh, defend itself, to project force, um, to run a prosperous economy even when it's under threat, how it manages alliances and so on and so forth. And, of course, the other thing he said about the defence strategies that have been drawn up from time to time is that they've all been complete fantasies. Um, Australia is, <laughs> yes, you know, the, you know, they all assume... How dare you say that about a government white paper? Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> they, they, you know, they famously assumed that Australia would never have a conflict within 10 years, and which is so far away that you don't have to do anything about it. Or if you go back further into the 20th century, we were pitifully unprepared uh, for both of the world wars that we were involved in. So he talks a little bit about what a better defence strategy would look like and a, and a planning horizon more like three years. But really what he's saying is Australia needs to get its act together and, and uh, create a, a national security strategy, um, create a national security uh, decision-making apparatus within government uh, he's very complimentary of, of Scott Morrison, I think rightly so, for, for treating this, uh, this seriously. Uh, there's been reforms to the intelligence uh, sharing um, apparatus of Australia and, the, and Molan is essentially suggesting a similar model for coordinating um, national security relevant uh, matters and developing a strategy um, he didn't quite say it this way, but he, I was thinking as I was listening, it reminds me of Israel, and and Molan doesn't actually say that, but he does talk about Israel, and I think you, you start to think about Australia's place in the world, and you know the much more dangerous times that we live on, live in, and you think all, almost that uh, you know Australia has some similarities to Israel in the sense of its its vulnerabilities. We're enormously bigger, of course, uh, in terms of land mass but not greatly different in terms of population and potentially in a region uh, where you're surrounded by hostile forces. Anyway, so uh, don't listen to me. Listen to Jim Molan. He actually knows what he's talking about, even if you don't agree with everything. Uh, listen to his podcast, Noise Before Defeat. Um, over to you, Evan. Cool. Uh, my culture pick is a uh, series I really enjoyed and wanted to recommend to the listeners and viewers out there, and that's uh, one on Stan called Condor. Um, now, the second season came out a whole two and a half years after the first season. Uh, this is a spin-off of uh, Three Days of Condor, which is a film in, in the 1970s. Robert Redford. Yeah. Yep. And um, the, the fir- it sort of um, very much goes into uh, the American deep state, a uh, bit of deep state action thriller. Um, now, the, the first season had a lot more action, um, uh, being there was a CIA plot to unleash the plague at Mecca um, uh, and a, a coincidental uncovering of, of that plot led to the protagonist, Joe Turner, uh, having to uh, be... He, he was uh, blamed for that uh, and then basically him trying to escape scenarios where he gets arrested... Uh, and uncovering the plot. Uh, the second season is a bit more of a, a, a thriller. Um, there's a lot of twists and turns. Uh, it's about Russian spies and Russian assets 
and an American asset in the CIA uh, and which is uh, uh, gets blamed on being a lot of his uh, close associates but ends up not being. Uh, so lots of twists and turns and uh, at the start he looks very naive, the protagonist, but in, as it goes towards the end of the series he becomes more aware of what's going on and Sorry, is it, is it the same protagonist as season one? Yep. Same guy. Yep. Okay. Same guy. So um, I, I very much enjoyed it. If you're into sort of deep state stuff, uh, CIA, FBI kind of uh, stuff about the American intelligence communities and American intelligence communities around the world, uh, this is the this is the show for you. Yeah. I've- Obviously, that's, that's in the sort of post-Watergate environment. I do want to make a shout out for the movie, an underrated movie from that, that genre of 1970s um, uh, uh, paranoia movies, which is the Parallax View, the Warren Beatty movie, mm-hmm. where it ends with you knowing absolutely nothing about the plot. <laughs> absolutely nothing. It is just like the the deep state is just too big, and you you would never you would never figure it out, and you're going to lose against it anyway. So <laughs> that's that's the that's it's the certainly, moral, that's it's certainly the a, a rich genre. Has there ever been a movie where the CIA actually comes out well? <laughs> you know, ever, ever, <laughs> ever since, ever uh, since, uh, ever since the Watergate, the, the, the Watergate. No, no, poor old, mm. poor old CIA. I'm sure they do some great work. Probably, uh, I'm sure there's some fine people, uh, some good, <laughs> some good people down there. But who, who would ever know if you only watch Hollywood movies? But anyway, uh, three recommendations there. Um, thank you, Evan. Oh, Jack uh, Ryan. No, no, you're wrong. Jack Ryan is a CIA agent. So oh, okay. He's always mm. Yep. No, no. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Looking Forward. I'd like to say a big thank you to my co-host today, uh, Dr. Chris Berg, Evan, Evan Mulholland. A uh, big thank you also to uh, Josh and Steve in the studio. Uh, we'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.